this way. Many of you have one of these books lying around, right? <laughs> I have a few. Some of you have one of these books, and maybe yours looks very similar to mine, where um, I got this from my great-aunt Charlotte. Those of you that have been in the church a minute, you know about my great-aunt Charlotte. She is kind of the reason I'm here. Um, and she, she gave me this book when I was uh, about 17. Okay, so I had a, a little kid's Bible for a long time that your boy didn't read. And then she got me one of these, and I was like, I just thought it was so cool, you know, and maybe you got your Bible the same way, you know, it's got the gold leaf, you know, it, says, it has my name on it, it felt really official, right, I'm going to take this back to Sunday school. Um, this one is in the King James Version, in the words of Jesus in red, some of you have a Bible like that. It's got a dictionary and concordance, and I didn't even know what either of those things were back then. And then it's got maps, and I never understood why it had maps, I didn't need to know how to get there. Uh, but it had maps, so it was cool. Um, but I, I honestly never read it. And the thing was, is I was like 16, 17, around that time frame. And it's in the King James Version, which is just harder to read. And uh, for me, um, I didn't know there were multiple versions of the Bible. Did you know there's multiple versions of the Bible? There's multiple versions and translations of the Bible. Your boy didn't know that when he was younger. So she told me, she specifically prayed Psalm 91 over me when I was, uh, when I was going through boot camp and when I left and you know, went into the military. She just consistently prayed that Psalm over me. And it was the idea that the Lord is my stronghold. So I, you know, being, a, being just the person I am, I was like, I'm going to get that tattooed. So I went and got it tattooed across my back, except it's in the King James Version, because I didn't know there was another version. I had no idea. So I preach from the NIV, and I study in multiple translations, but the verse that I have, the tattoo I have on my back is in the KJV, because I didn't know there was anything different. Maybe you were handed your Bible, similar to how I was, where it was handed to you, and they said, hey, look, it's infallible, right? It's inerrant and it's inspired. It's infallible, it's inerrant, and it's inspired. And you need to believe every word in it. And it is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. And they handed it to you, and that was it. And it's like, what do I do with it? And it's like, just read it and apply it. And they're like, what do you, it's a lot here. And I mean, there's some things that, you know, Joshua goes through murdering a whole bunch of people in a mass destruction of the Canaanites, should I, is, do I apply that to my life? How do I do that? Right? And then maybe you've read some other parts, and it's like you get to Song of Solomon, and you're like, I don't know if I'm ready to apply that to my life. Right? Those of you that are versed in the Bible know that book. But um, the, the thing is, is we didn't really get the opportunity for the way we were presented the Bible as a child, because you, know, you, you, you kind of compensate for the individual you're speaking to. Right? As a child, they're not able to understand everything about it, so you hand them the Bible and you explain it. But then as you grow, nobody ever helps you really understand what the Bible is. It just is, here it is, take it and apply it. And it's like, this is hard. Not only is this hard, I'm not even sure what to do with this. I don't even know, like, what's it mean to, to apply some of these different lessons? What does it mean to, to take uh, this and, and, and apply it to my life? I, I don't fully understand. And then there's, like, the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament, and then there's, like, another section called the Gospels. And then there's these guys that seem really angry all the time, and they're called the prophets. And I don't know, they just seem real angry all the time. And, and then there's, like, a whole section where it just gives us wise sayings. Like, uh, maybe you were like me, and they just handed it to you and said, here it is take it and run with it. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. And so consequently, we don't read it. 
Consequently, we don't spend any time in it. Consequently, we don't um, really understand, and this becomes a, a coffee coaster or a decoration in the home. And it sits in it, you know, it's real pretty. Don't nobody, right? Don't set anything on your Bible. If anybody grew up in the South, like my, my grandmother or, and my Aunt Charlotte, it was don't put anything on that Bible. And if anything set on her Bible, which was confusing because she would put it in the old school zip Bible covers. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And it had all the, the, her notes and stuff in there. And, uh, but it sat in the trunk of the car. Where am I going to put the groceries? <laughs> the whole thing is now holy. The whole trunk is holy, and I can't put the groceries anywhere. And Charlotte, where do you want me to put the groceries? So maybe you heard the same thing. It's, it, it, you don't put anything on it, right? You don't, you don't do anything with it. And when you ask questions about it, it's like, don't ask questions about the Bible. It's the Bible. The Holy Bible. Don't ask questions about it. You're like, but why did he do? And it's like, nope, because God said so. Or the Bible said so. And we don't ever get the, uh, the opportunity to kind of expand and understand why these things happen. And consequently, many of us may have walked away from faith because we were never allowed to interact with real questions that we had related to the events and to the things happening in the Bible. And here's the thing. A lot of us know the stories in the Bible, but few of us know the story of the Bible. We know the stories in the Bible, you know, David and Goliath and Noah, right? We know the stories in the Bible, but we don't know how we got the Bible. And we're not even sure what this is at times. I just know it's, in, it's the three eyes, infallible, inerrant, inspired, word of God, and no more questions are to be asked. Well, if that's how you grew up, then you grew up the same way I did. And for some people, that's perfect. For some people, you, we don't need, you, know, you don't need it. You hear it and you're like, okay no problem at all, I'm good. I can take that and I can run with it. For some of us, such as myself, that wasn't good enough. And so when I started going into my collegiate degree into figuring out like, okay, I'm going to be a pastor, probably need to know more than the gospels and the Bible. So I started college and then I started unpacking. And I was like, wait a second, the Bible's not necessarily, it is all of those things, but it is so much more than those things. But the problem was, is it wasn't allowed to grow with me. It was handed to me as a child, and this is what it is, and then before you know it, it didn't grow with me, and so my understanding of it didn't grow either, and we're in this series, that's a good question, and in this series, you guys have helped me write, you guys have been asking questions online through the Google form of, hey, we want to know about all these things, we've answered questions like, why do bad things happen, um, which was really hard, why does God allow suffering, right, we've answered some of these questions, and some of the questions I got was related to this book. It was related to this book. And let me tell you, these are great questions. Don't ever come in this building. Don't ever get in this gathering of Jesus followers and think that you can't ask questions here. You do not need to check your brain at the door here, okay? We will entertain and we will ask and we will wrestle any questions that come up. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the question that we're going to answer today is what is the Bible. What is the Bible? Now, for many of us, again, you hear it, you go, Word of God, and that's it, and there's nothing else you need, and if that works for you, fantastic. For some of us, it's called the Scriptures. You know, we kind of view it as the Scriptures. For some of us that don't believe, we think of it as uh, kind of like a mythology. And for those that have no belief at all in it, and the atheistic viewpoint is it's just a fairy tale. But the Bible's been called many different things, but it has affected many different people 
throughout the years. And we want to understand what it is. So I have two goals for today. I want to tell you what the Bible is, and I want to show you why it's reliable. I want to show you, I want to tell you what the Bible is and show you what the Bible is, and then I want to explain why it's reliable. Because just because we know what it is doesn't help us if we don't understand it's reliable. And the idea that we don't, can't prove it's reliable, we don't think it's reliable, is not true. And I'm going to show you that today. Because my thesis is that we've started off on the wrong foot with this book, for many of us, started off on the wrong foot with this book, and that's created our aversion to read it. For many of us, we would come in and we sit here, and this is the only Bible we get is when we're in a row. Maybe you're one of the ones that are connected in a life group, and so you get the Bible another time throughout the week. But we never crack it on our own. We never open it. We never look at what the Scriptures say on our own. So in order to understand this first question of what the Bible is, I'm going to start by telling you what it isn't. The Bible is not a science book. It has science in it, but it's not a science book. The Bible is not an astrology book. It has astrology in it. It is not an astrology book. The Bible is not a biology book. It has biology in it, but it's not a biology book. The Bible is not going to answer all your questions. That was one of the ones I got. Why doesn't the Bible answer all the questions? Because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is not to answer all the questions. The Bible is not going to tell you the name of your future husband. It's not going to. You can look everywhere and say, that's it. It's Boaz. It's not Boaz. It's not Boaz. Okay, but you're, and it's not a get rich like, hey, this is how you get rich. This is how you take your money. Like, no, it's not that. It has money principles in here. Sure, it has many different principles in here, but it's not specifically that thing. The Bible was put together across over almost four thousand years, and it has sixty-six different books, and it was written by forty different authors. 40 different authors, which is absolute insanity in the overarching theme. This is the reason the Bible exists. This is the point of the Bible. The Bible is a record of God's rescue operation in the world, culminating in the arrival of Jesus. It's all pointing back to Jesus. I say it this way. I say that the Bible is simply paradise lost to paradise found. Paradise lost to paradise restored. That's, that's the story of the Bible, but it culminates in the key piece and the hinge point is Jesus. It's always Jesus. And it's so important that we understand that. Now, again, as I said, don't check your brain at the door. Okay, we're going to cover a lot of information today. And some of you are like, I should have grabbed that extra cup of coffee, right? So I want you to, if I want you to, you guys right in front of you, you have note cards and pens. So as you take this information down, write it down, because we are going to dive into what the Bible is and why it's reliable. In order to understand that, we have to understand the Bible is divided into two parts. Anybody remember the first part? Old Testament, and then what's the other part? Yeah, not a trick question, right? Old Testament and New Testament. It's divided right at the begin, or right there at the book of Matthew. You also have to understand the Bible is not in chronological order, okay? The Bible is not in chronological order. It's grouped by theme, what they are. So you have the major and minor prophets in a section, then you have kings, and then you have uh, the historical books going backwards. Then you have like the Mosaic books in the beginning, or the Septuagint and the Torah, all that in the beginning. So it's not grouped chronologically. 
So if you read it and you think you're going to go from Genesis to Matthew chronologically, you're going to get confused because you're going to be like, wait a second, I thought I heard that king talked about in 2 Kings, but here I am in Chronicles, what's going on? It's because it's grouped together, specifically related to the, st- the books that it's in, so that it would be easy reference. That's why it's grouped that way. Nobody- there are chronological versions of the Bible you can buy. I love doing chronological plans because I like to do that, and I think it's fun. But you need to know that when you start learning about your Bible. In order to understand this book, we have to start, honestly, we have to start in the New Testament. To understand this book, we have to start there. We're not going to start in the beginning. Because that's not where it started. It's actually started in Luke, closer to the middle. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And as you, I give you a second to get there, you, I want you to understand um, that Luke is writing to a specific person. Okay, He's writing to a specific per- person, and Luke has an agenda when he's writing. And we're going to learn about it here in just a second. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. Luke is gathering information. He's carefully investigated the information about this guy, Jesus. And as he's gathered this information, he's put it together in, a, in an orderly fashion so that this Greek aristocrat... Theophilus knows that his faith is real and knows that his faith is true. And he has reason to believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be and that Jesus raised from the dead. So he puts it together in the document we call today Luke. But we breeze over a word that is so significant because we don't understand and it just doesn't, it's not something that we, we really pay attention to. But we breeze over a word that is so important to this story. And it's the very first word. Many. Many. This word, many, is, uh, we don't think about it, but it's actually one of the most important words in the entire, uh, the entire part. It, it's one of the most important words. You've got many, and then you've got eyewitnesses and servants of the word. But many is important because the question we should ask is, why so many people? Why would so many people work to take a, or uh, undertake to, to write about this Jesus guy. I mean, come on. Why would so many people write about him? And even more so, if we unpack the idea of the ancient world and the way they wrote, why would they write about a guy who really was inconsequential if Jesus wasn't who he said he was? If all Jesus did, okay, if all Jesus was, was a rabbi who walked around and taught and then died on the cross and that was it, many people would not write about Jesus. That's just it. If it was, many people would not write about him if that wasn't, if that was all he was. If he was just those things, nobody would write about him. In fact, if, if he was just those things, the story of Jesus would drift into antiquity and we would never, we would have never heard about it. But because that's not what happened, because Jesus rose from the dead, many people, and all of a sudden now we have a reason many people would be interested. 
Because he sits back and goes, Luke goes, there's a lot of people trying to figure this out. There's a lot of people that have heard about him. I'm going to go find out exactly what was said. So when you read Luke's account, it's very logical and it's very to the point because he's trying to get them to understand and he's investigating, going straight to the eyewitnesses. So Luke says, no, look, I've talked to Peter. I've talked to Paul. I've talked to Matthew. I've talked to these characters. So, hey, I am aware and I'm writing these things down so that you could have a record of it. And here's the thing. Again, the Bible didn't start with Genesis. The formation of the Bible starts right here with the writing of the Gospels. Because it's when they're writing the Gospels that people go, oh man, hold on a second, something special happened in the world. Something amazing happened in the world, and we don't have a a category for it, we don't fully understand it, but something truly amazing happened. Because Jesus did not stay dead. The story of Christianity doesn't start in Genesis. The story of Christianity starts at the resurrection. And it was at that resurrection where all the disciples came back. It's at that resurrection where everybody started coming back to Jesus because they all abandoned him prior to the crucifixion. And it's, that's when they come back and we see the, mo- the movement that happens in act. Because for 300 years, there was no Bible but Christianity spread like wildfire. No Bible. This book wasn't here yet because many were still working to put up to develop an account. There was no Bible for 300 years. And the Spirit of God was still moving because fragments of the Bible, the writings of Paul, the writings of the apostles, the writings and records of the Gospels were in this book. Or they weren't in this book yet, but they were floating around in pieces, and they'd take those pieces, and Christian households would protect those pieces because they knew the story behind them. And they would go, oh, we've got to protect this because this is, this is Peter's account of Jesus. We've got to protect this. And for three, almost 300 years, there was, they weren't allowed to worship Jesus. The temple and Rome had to destroy it. They wanted to figure, they wanted to totally, 100% destroy Christianity, but they couldn't. Because there were eyewitnesses who had spent time with Jesus after his resurrection. Case, uh, here's an interesting thought when we start to unpack this. is All 11 disciples that were left were martyred. That means they were killed for the faith. All 11 of them, except, except John. John just died on his own. He, he, they tried to kill him and they couldn't kill John, so they, they sent him to the island of Patmos. But um, from... From these disciples, they were all martyred, believing that Jesus Christ was their Lord. All of them. And not just them, many more. There's records of Christians being pulled to Nero's circus in the center of the, the Roman Colosseum, where Christians would be burned at the stake or be fed to animals. And they would be professing their faith as the gates opened. You don't do that for something that's not true. And Peter, when Peter was about to be killed because he kept preaching about Jesus, and they warned him, and they said, stop, and they said, stop, and they said, stop, and Peter goes, I can't keep quiet about this. The world has to know. And they said, okay, well, we're going to crucify Peter. And Peter stops him. He says, hold on. No, 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 no. You can't crucify me that way. You can't. 
Jesus was crucified. If you're going to kill me, do it a different way. And they're like, no, we're going to crucify you. And he says, okay, well, then at least don't put me vertical the way Jesus was, because I, I don't deserve to even be in the same light as him. Crucify me upside down. And Peter is crucified. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified upside down. That doesn't happen if it's a made-up story. That doesn't happen. Maybe it happens once. Maybe it happens twice. But for it to happen 10 times with 10 of the disciples and for it to happen with Christian households after that, it doesn't make sense for it to work that way. Unless Jesus is who he said he was. And unless there were eyewitnesses, as Luke says, of the account of the Christ walking among men. So that's how we got the New Testament. Because the Gospels were written talking about Jesus, and then Paul's going around writing corrections to the different churches and letters of the churches. The other apostles are writing letters to the churches. So when you get to your Bible and you finish John and you get to Acts, Acts is the Acts of the Apostles and Acts of the Holy Spirit in the church, forming the church, kind of like a historical document. And then after that, you see Romans in your Bible. From Romans to Revelation is the letters from the apostles or the letters from the, uh, from the believers to the churches because they were trying to get them to understand because Jesus talked about a lot of things and taught a lot of things. And then it was, okay, well, how do we do this in our context? And so then you get the letters from Paul and James and John and all the different letters that are associated with that, all the way to the um, apocalyptic literature of Revelation. That's how we get the New Testament. And then in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea gets together and finally Christianity is legal. Prior to then, it was illegal to be a Christian. You would be crucified or you would be killed or fed to the lions or burned at the stake if you began to follow and claim Jesus. And then in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea meets and they put together what would be the beginning of Ta Biblia, or as we have it, the Bible. And you go, okay, Brandon, that helps me on the first part. What about all these other ones? What about Isaiah and Job and Chronicles and Samuel and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Well, those came from the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you look at your Old Testament, that's not what, that's not what the Hebrews call it because it's not, it's not old for them. It's like that's their Bible. So for them, it's like this isn't old. This is our, this is our, New Te- this is our, our Bible. And so what happened was is the Christians get a hold of it and they say, hold on, Jesus talks about a lot of different things here. And, you know, he references another group of scriptures consistently. What was that? Because you got to think, there wasn't a bunch of Hebrew Jesus followers or Jew- Jewish Jesus followers at that point. And so they point back and go, what was that? And then they unpack the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus actually referenced the, New T- the Old Testament multiple times. No more famous than this quote that he had in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points back to the Old Testament, and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what they called the Old Testament in those days. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets, meaning those still stand firm. Those are still there. That, that still exists. Do not think that I've come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Meaning everything in that section is pointing to me, is what he said. And if you think about it, that was absolutely blasphemous for him to say that. But he comes in, he says, everything was pointing to me. That's why those things were written. 
So the reason, the reason that we have the Bible today, the reason that your Bible today has the Old Testament scriptures in it is because Jesus referenced and believed in the Old Testament. He referenced, believed, and fulfilled the Old Testament. So when you're reading through your Old Testament and you're finding hints of what seems like the God, character of God is very similar to the character of Jesus, yes, because that's how it was formed. And then all of the Christians around 325 and beyond, they started to put it together and they go, hold on a second, Jesus talked about these. So if he referenced them consistently and Jesus died and rose from the dead, we're going to go with what he said. Because ain't nobody else done that yet. And, 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 and we saw the miracles he had. So, hey, we're going to go with whatever Jesus had to say. And many of us sit back and go, okay, working with the logical brains in here. And we go, okay, Brandon, how do we know that the New Testament is even reliable? I got a couple different things that I believe the New Testament is reliable. First question is, where are the other competing beliefs that the New Testament is not? From that day and age, not the new atheists that are writing now. I don't care about what they have to say. They're very smart, but that doesn't help get to the root of the problem. Where are the ancient documents that refute the four gospel accounts of Jesus? There are none. There are none because it was accepted as fact and it started to take off like wildfire. So there are none. There are no disputes because we have four records of the life of Jesus and over 20 letters to the gatherings of Jesus' followers. No records disputing it at all. And here's another one. This is the easiest one. This is one I love to go to. If, all, if they wanted to stop this Jesus movement, all they had to do was produce a body. That was it. That's it. You produce a body. When people are like, he rose from the dead, they could go, nope, there he is. That's all they would have to do. And if they could do that, game over. Jesus movement over. There is no Christianity. We're not sitting in this space anymore. And I work at a lumber mill or something. <laughs> like, if, there's, if the tomb isn't empty, no Christianity. But nobody could produce a body. Nobody could produce a body. At all. I mean, the temple could have. They knew where they buried him. The Romans could have. Why, why, why didn't they just produce a body and say, no, 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 okay, look, Jesus is not, look, we saw him walking. <laughs> He's not walking. He's right there. They couldn't do that. Here's another one. Another one is called, another validation of the New Testament is called discovery. Discovery. And this is the idea that uh, the standard for legitimacy of ancient documents depends on two factors. How many copies we have and how many years those copies were written from the original. So how many copies do we have, how many years those copies were written from the original. That determines how reliable an ancient document is. So the more copies that match up and the closer to the original document they are written, the more reliable those documents are. Everybody with me? You good? Okay. So may, many of you probably have studied Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, the book by Caesar himself. Um, so if you've heard of that, that book has 12 copies 900 years after the original. But nobody, no, not once did your college professor go, well, this is what we think Caesar said. You didn't hear that. You didn't hear like, oh, well, this is what maybe Caesar said. We think Caesar said it. I don't know. And there's only one record. Caesar's. That's it. 
but we accept it as fact that it has absolutely happened exactly as it's written in these things. Homer's the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Iliad, not even the Odyssey, the Odyssey only has a few copies. The Iliad has more copies. The Iliad has 1,757 copies written 2,000 years after the original. But not one time in college did they say, we think this is what Homer meant. We think Achilles did this. We think that, you know, Odysseus did this. Like, that's not, that never happens at all. And we just accept them as fact. We just simply accept them as fact. The New Testament, however, the Gospels and the letters have a total of 5,500 copies, all written within 100 years of the resurrection. No other book in antiquity can even hold a candle to the New Testament. Which leads us to believe, and as it's written, right after the eyewitness accounts, if what's in this book relating to Jesus did not happen, why so many copies? Why so soon after the resurrection? I mean, if, like I said, if it wasn't difficult, we could just pull it out. Like, it's, it's not hard. We could just get rid of it, but nothing. Because it happened. Another argument for it is called correspondence. And this is where the Bible, the idea that the Bible tells one unified story. Remember what I said, it is the God's rescue operation in the world, culminating in the arrival of Jesus. Now, there's a, a group of scholars actually put together a graph that shows in the Bible, both New and Old Testament, all the different places where they correspond to one another. And I've got a graph I want to show you guys the different correspondence. In your Bible that you have sitting at home is this many interactions across all of the books. Let me help you understand it. This is Genesis, and that is Revelation. They alternate colors, so you have different colors of white and gray. And each one of those lines is a reference to one of the other books, a correspondence between one of the other books. Those of you that have a Bible similar to the one that I have here, you have this column in the center, and this center column here has a whole bunch of verse references on it. That is this on page. So across our Bible, now some of you go, yeah, 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 one book, you know, sure, fine, except 66 different books, written almost over 4,000 years, written by 40 different authors, tell one unified story that results in that many different correspondence across all of the books. If we were to see this, if this, was a, if this was an author that wrote this this way, we would look at that and go, that's astounding. That person is a master composer. They are a master writer. I mean, they are the coup de grace. They wrote 66 different books, and there's all these intertwining plot lines. And I mean, come on, there's just no way that's even possible. We would be blown away if we saw something like that. You have it. Probably sitting at home on your coffee table, and it's gathering dust. But it is, one of, it is the most influential book in human 
history. What's interesting is in this graph, you see that big long line that's dropping down? That's Psalm 119. That psalm is all about the Word of God. Not this word, right? Because this word didn't exist then. So when we hear Word of God, that's a, that's a modern representation of this book. When, that, when Psalm 19 says Word of God, it's literally talking about the Hebrew word ruach, which means the life breath of the Lord. To where that psalm is all talking about God and how when God speaks, life comes. And when God speaks and you obey what he says, life comes. That verse is the most corresponded verse in the entire Bible by a long shot. It is one unified story built across three different continents, 40 different authors, 66 different books, thousands of years. Paul explains it this way. All scripture, Paul writes to Timothy, is God-breathed and useful for the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul was writing that, he did not know that his letter to his protege, Timothy, would be included in in the New Testament scriptures. He didn't know that. God knew that. And as Paul was writing, he was referencing the Old Testament. So if we ever get to a place where somebody says, look, the uh, half of this Bible is not useful, I would like to see how they balance what Jesus said, and I would also like to see how they balance what Paul said. I would just like to see that. If they ever say, look, the entire Old Testament's not useful, Paul says it is. And Jesus references it multiple different times. But Paul writing this doesn't know that this is going to be included in our Bible. Paul doesn't realize that God is guiding him along to get him to see, or so that we could see that the entirety of the Scripture is God-breathed. In fact, that word God-breathed is the Greek word theonousestos. I didn't take Greek, but I could pass to someone who did. (laughs) And it was good, right? You like that? That's solid. Yeah. Theo, Theo, Nusestos. But this this idea is literally the same idea, okay? The corresponding Hebrew phrase is when God created Adam and Eve. Remember, he breathed life into them. And now Paul says this, because I would never say this. I would never say this. Paul, looking back on his life after he experienced, because Paul had interactions with Jesus also. Paul had interactions with Jesus, read Acts 9, he had interactions with Jesus a few different times. He had visions from Jesus. Paul, looking back after experiencing everything he experienced with the eyewitness accounts from the other disciples, everything he's experienced, Paul says that the scriptures are the breath of God, that they are the breath of God, and they are useful, he says, for the teaching, rebuking. And see, the thing is, the way I like to explain this is I want you to imagine a person sitting at the, at the kitchen table or at the table and they're writing the words, and it's their hand, but imagine the breath of God has fallen upon them and moving their hand as they write the scriptures. It's their hand, but it's influenced and inspired by the creator and the author. There is no other way, ladies and gentlemen, we get that kind of correspondence across 66 different books. 
if there's not one unified breath. The apostle says, so, so let, let, me, let me ask you this. Maybe you guys go, okay, Brandon, that was great. Um, I mean, I learned so much. I didn't write any of it down, and I won't remember it, but make sure you put it on YouTube for me, <laughs> which we will. We will. Um, so you can argue with your friends at work about whether the Bible is real or not. And um, you sit back and you go, okay, well, so what, Brandon? So what? We're come to this place. Here we are. You've made a great presentation about why the scriptures are reliable and everything else. What does that actually matter in my life? Well, if the scriptures are God-breathed, if they are God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training, in righteousness. If that's true, if the scriptures are God-breathed and they're useful for all of those things, I don't know about you, but I like to be taught, okay? I want to know when I'm on the right path, so some rebuking, none of us like that part, rebuking and correcting, but many of us know how significant it is, especially if you're a parent. You know how important it is to be rebuked and corrected. I like to train. I like to be trained up in it, and I for sure want to be as righteous as I can on this side of glory, and I love to be equipped. So if that's the case, if the Scriptures are those things, I have to be, I have to be a good pastor and I have to ask you this question. Do you read them? I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't ask you that question. If I didn't at least bring it to the forethought of your mind to the front of your mind. That if these are all those things, which I mean, I, th I think we made a pretty good argument that they are, why would we not read them? Because we learned last week the importance of applying specific parts of the Scriptures to our lives. It's not going to help you get rich. It's not going to give you the name of your future wife. It's, it's not going to tell you how to parent your kids when they're like punching each other. It's not going to tell you that stuff. Right? Maybe it does a little bit in some aspects. It's not going to be a direct correlation. But what this book does, the whole purpose of this book is to show you the rescue operation of your Heavenly Father after you, after your kids, after the people who are sitting next to you, and the people you don't like. It's God's record of the rescue operation that He went on. And when you read it and you understand it and you grasp it, guess what starts to happen? You become more like Jesus. And as you become more like Jesus, you are, to use Paul's words, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, here we go. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Jesus follower, this is for you. If you're not a Jesus follower and you just, you're just hearing this, you're giving church one last try, I hope I made a good argument for the Bible for you and why it's a reliable document. If you want to have more questions, you can talk to me afterwards. I love to do that stuff. But if you're a Jesus follower, so this is for you, if you're a Jesus follower, do you engage with the Bible regularly? Do you engage with the Bible regularly? does not have to be like an hour long. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to read an entire chapter. If you haven't been reading the Bible, do not go in and say, I'm going to read a whole chapter. Maybe you are for a few days. Then you ain't. Go in and just, this is, this is what I always encourage people, is just add five minutes to whatever you're doing now. 
Wake up in the morning. If, if the morning's a good time for you, if the evening's a good time for you, if it's your lunch break, I don't care when it is. I just know that when I read this, I become more like Jesus. And when I become more like Jesus, I'm a better husband. When I become more like Jesus, I'm a better father. When I become more like Jesus, I'm a better leader. I'm a better friend. I'm a better person when I become more like Jesus. And this book is big and it's complex and, and, and I'm, the, I'm the pastor and I don't even understand all the stuff in it sometimes. Like when I build these messages, I have to go look it up. But that's the great part of it is you are always learning something new from this book because it's God's record of the rescue operation of the world. And we're certainly not going to catch every one of those plot lines that we saw. We're not going to catch every one of those correspondents on a couple times reading through the book of Matthew. We see the entirety of the picture when we focus it as part of our life, and part of our personal worship. So my challenge for you is what I call the five-minute challenge. My challenge for you is I want you to simply read five minutes more. Read five minutes more than you did yesterday. So if you didn't read anything yesterday, good for you. You get to start at the bottom. Okay? <laughs> if you're sitting there and you're like, Pastor, I did a three-hour Bible study. Three hours and five minutes tomorrow. <laughs> Love you. Because it, it will change and shape your life. It makes you more like Jesus every step of the way. So I encourage you, engage with it. It's reliable, and it's a record of God's rescue operation in the world. So the question I leave you with that you get to wrestle to the ground is have I honestly engaged with the scriptures the way I should? With that, I would love to pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this miraculous work that you've put on in this book, this gathering of books, this this thing that you this thing that you have given us and presented to us. To where we know the stories of Jesus because you preserved those writings, you preserved the eyewitness accounts, you preserved the interactions that people had with your son. And Lord, it's a big, scary, daunting book, especially because they put it all together. And so we look and we see the page number and we see the thickness of it and we, we sit back and go, oh man, dude, that, Pastor, that's so much. And we go, God, I'm never going to be able to read that. Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would encourage us and you'd give us the strength to say tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day. I'm going to read five minutes of what God said. And Lord, for us, some of us, we're going to sit back and go, I don't know where to start. Lord, I encourage all of them to start in John if they haven't found a place and they're not ready to dive into the deep parts. Get their toes wet and the record that John had with your son. So Father, I, I pray that your spirit empowers us I pray your spirit strengthens us and prepares us so that we might read this more often and get 
ourselves more in line with you in the teaching that you've given us, in the teachings of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise. And the church said, amen. Would you guys please stand and sing with us?